welcome, welcome, welcome to another All Together Now Shorted podcast. This this uh, episode is all about guys running around the field, playing with an odd-shaped ball uh, with the great name of rugby. Rugby is one of my passions. Um, rugby is the greatest game in the world. And um, we're very lucky tonight to have in a podcast, apart from my usual, James O'Brien, say hello. Good evening. Steve Head, say hello. Good evening. Uh, we've also got tonight, we've got a fantastic author with her, uh, Stephen Cooper, who wrote, well, I found out about him through a great book he, would call, uh, he wrote called The Final Whistle. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Well, what can I say about John Dennison? John Dennison... <laughs> Are you still current? Are you still an RFU uh, referee? No, no, no. I, I packed in in January fifteen. I was pensioned off. John is the brains behind the rugby memorial in France. Again, we'll talk about more of that in this podcast. But this is what we want to talk about. Obviously, the Six Nations have just started. I remember the first time I ever saw rugby ball, and I remember the headmaster coming out bringing the sod-shaped ball, saying, today, you guys, we're going to be playing rugby. And I must have been about four or five at the time. So, John, you played. Yeah, I started in my home village at East Peckham in Kent in 1977 um, when I was 18. I know anything about rugby. They stuck me on the wing, the first ever game for the club. <laughs> and all, my training session was run forwards and pass backwards. <laughs> so, Stephen, I presume you must have played. Uh, I played. I didn't have what you call a career. I just played till I was 26 and realised I was rubbish. I had, a br- <laughs> I had a brief moment, a brief moment. When I went to New York in the in my uh, early 30s and I had a team in New York called Manhattan. They didn't play on Manhattan because mm. there's nowhere to play. They played over on Long Island and they had just the coolest stash. Um, you know, the shorts had, <laughs> shorts had this little skyline in Manhattan. I had to have the stash. I spent two whole weeks searching for a pair of rugby boots in the whole of New York. They were not to be found. All you could get was some plastic soccer boots. I got those anyway. Turned up for the first training session, and I'm six foot three, uh, re- relatively large, and I arrived, and I just looked up and thought, oh, my word, because all these guys are gridiron players fed on red meat, and they were they were twice the size. And at this point, I'd just got married, and my wife was very keen on our marital prospects at that point. She said, no, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. Um, so um, after one training session, I, I retired again. Actually, crazy. So, um, well, yeah, so we're really here to talk about rugby and it's linked to um, the military. I mean, when I was at school, we used to play RMS Dover, um, so which was a, a military school down in Dover. And they were, <laughs> my God, every time we played them, it was a battering one way or another. You knew you were going to have to play them. That was from the ages of, you know, from ages of 13 to 18. You know, tough kids, really tough kids. Um, so, yeah, the, rugby has literally been, it is really important. Now, in, in World War One, was it the same? I, I know in football, the footballers were very, they would seem to be very late coming to the party, so to speak. Was that the same for rugby, rugby players? Uh, no, I mean, rugby, uh, I mean, the difference is, and, and uh, football is, is much reviled because of this. And I suppose uh, I probably contributed to that process. Uh, <laughs> but the difference was between an amateur game, you know, a gentleman uh, and a professional game, because football by that point was a professional game. Um, and when war was declared, I mean, you know, you've got to be aware that most of the country is being assured that the war would be over by Christmas. Um, so professional players playing for professional clubs who need to keep the turnstiles turning saw no reason to break legal contracts. These are legal employment contracts and go off to war when the war would be over by Christmas. Now, we all know the war wasn't over by Christmas. And at that point, football began to be very unpopular uh, and there were a lot of demonstrations and a lot of you know, propaganda posters you know, scorning and shaming. Footballers and the vicars were preaching from pulpits about uh, you know how footballers you know were not uh, uh, doing their bit for the country. Um, difference with um, rugby, it, it was an amateur game. There was no professionalism at all, um, so they were free to go. They had to obviously leave their jobs, but they did so. Um, and and the, you know, one of the things I found with Rostin Park, for instance, that by September, the first week of September, um, 
a huge number of those in my books who had already volunteered or were already in uh, the, the military in some way or another, Army, Navy. Um, and, you know, this is because they were very enthusiastic about it. That many of them had served with the territorial regiments, which were set up in 1908. So we're already doing military service. And it was a simple matter of saying, OK, I'm now willing to serve overseas, which is not what territorials were set up to do. They actually had to sign a new piece of paper because territorials were at home defence. They had to sign a new piece of paper that said, yes, I will go overseas. Um, and off they went. So, you know, that, that was an easy one. Um, and, you know, the, when I think it's the 4th of September, the rugby union put out a, an announcement that basically says we, we're going to not play this season because of the present demands of war. But by this point, there were no clubs anyway, because they'd all closed down, because all their players had already signed up. Um, so it was a fait accompli. I mean, the RFU, you know, <laughs> one might also, was slightly after the event. They just simply missed the boat. All the players already volunteered. They're already in training. Uh, and some of them were actually already over in France as well. So, uh, yeah, rugby very quick, football very slow, not really their fault, professional game. But, you know, they carried on the football season until April of 1915. Um, and it's a really yeah, good... Right. Really good pub trivia question here, which is, um, who, you know, the, the, the team that won the league that year um, was Everton. And because there was no more football for another four years, Everton remained champions of, uh, of, of English football for four years. <laughs> oh, so, John's pleased about that. <laughs> I'm a toffee supporter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Ironically, actually, women's football became extremely popular during that period. Yes. Well, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, which is which is again, we look at the sport and uh, people who, who follow football and rugby nowadays. There's always that that legacy of the interwar years. Was it the same in World War Two? No, I mean the World War Two is a very different conflict. It wasn't the same you know, um, mass joining up as there was um, in in 1914, um, and and society almost as a result of the First World War had changed. You know, it was no longer a simple... I mean, there was still trace of the whole public school caste system, but so it had changed. Um, and, you know, I think by that point, you know, the distinctions were, were almost... You know, they were just not there. I mean, again, rugby players still flocked to the colours. Um, and, and that's sort of where my story started, because, you know, Rostin Park and its clubhouse had this World War II memorial to those who fought. And, it, and it's a very rare use of the phrase, in the Second Great War... I don't think I've ever seen that phrase used before, the Second Great War. Now, it rather implied what I later found out from a, uh, you know, an elderly member of the club who's since passed, is that there was actually um, a big memorial plaque to those who died in the First Great War. But it had been lost when the club moved in 1956 from Old Deer Park um, in Richmond, uh, or by Q, by the pagoda there, over to where it is now on the South Circular. Um, and, you know, this chap swore blind. He'd put this wooden board onto the removal and he wasn't at the other side when they were offloading it, uh, and he never saw it again. Um, so, you know, it's a mystery as to what on earth happened to that war memorial. Um, but having found out that story, I thought, well, you know, do we know how many died and who they were? And, and, and the fact was we didn't. The only clue is a tiny little press clipping in one of the scrapbooks that were kept in the archives of the... Uh, of a club, it's, which literally said 72 died. Uh, I think the headline was a magnificent record. 72 died, uh, 63 military crosses, two Victoria crosses, the whole catalogue of, of decorations and medals. Not a single name was mentioned. So these guys had just become statistics already you know, by a club that presumably knew them as friends. You know, They're called Bill and Charlie and things like that. But already they'd become anonymous. There were just so many stats in a war that was full of stats. Uh, and I thought, well, it's, it's awful that these 72 blokes have been forgotten uh, and they don't deserve to be. So I set about the process of, of trying to find who they were. And thankfully, the club had actually kept its records uh, in the safe and they hadn't been burnt as they, as for instance, London Scottish, uh, all their records got accidentally burned. And when they did their first World War stuff, they really had to almost start from scratch and try and work out who had been um, you know, there and who'd been killed. But um, Rostin Park still had its minute books going back to 1879. So, you know, lots of cross-tabbing of the entries in there with the Commonwealth War Graves. And I say that the aiming target was 72. Now, um, this was just, a, at the time, it was just a project. I took my mighty under-13s on tour to uh, France, and we went to Compiègne, 
uh, where the armistice was signed. Uh, and we'd done a bit of a battlefield tour, which frankly the boys really didn't care about. I mean, it was actually, it was stunning how uninterested they were in this whole yeah. thing. But I was trying to instill in them a sense of what had happened, but they just didn't want to know. They just wanted to play rugby, so fair enough. But at Compiègne, we, we played, and by the side of the pitch, um, they had a memorial there where I think they lost 58 of their 120 it's members it's in the first war. 55, yeah. And, um, you know, very appropriate. Before we played the game, it was on, on a Sunday, we had a service, and the French who take this stuff very seriously, as John will know, and they do it very well. A uh, chap from the military came along dressed in the full blue rig and the, you know, the KP and such like, and he gave a speech in French, and he said, the, the phrase that struck me most um, and really got me inspired and led to the book was he said, rugby and warfare share a common language. Um Mais enfin, you know, uh, he said, ce n'est pas la même chose. You know, at the end of the day, it's not the same thing. And, and this really struck me. Uh, and I ran, started reading you know, the um, press reports on rugby games and noticing how they, the journalists casually fell into the use of this military language. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, I think, 2012, when the England team with Farrell, when he was, you know, he was only just started playing for them, went over to Ireland. Ireland were heavily fancied. England were a very callow, youthful team. And they came away with a very so hard for, I think it was 12 9 or something like that. So it's just a kicking game, uh, which is England's speciality, of course. But uh, um, they came back. And Mick Cleary in the Telegraph said, you know, these are not young boys. These are, they're hardened for the trenches, he said. He actually used the word hardened for trenches. And you think about the language, you know, there's torpedo kicks, there's, you know, sort of bombs. Um, you know, do you remember so when um, Bill McLaren always described uh, Gavin Hastings having a, a boot like a howitzer? Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's military language everywhere. Um, scrum half sniping around the corner and things like that. Yeah. And I began to think, well, why is this? Why is this association? Because it actually doesn't really happen um, with, with other sports. And okay, attack and defense, you have that in sports as well, but the particular military language. Um, and, and then I started noticing this, this affinity of rugby with the military. So if you remember Help for Heroes, when they first started, you know, as a result yeah. of you know, the response to the Afghan war, the first thing they did was a mass cycle ride to Paris. And frankly, nobody noticed. Um, it was the first thing they did. Second thing they did, they did a huge rugby game um, mm. at Twickenham. Uh, with, I think, Delalio captaining one side and Martin Johnson the other. And they raised a million pounds and it put them on the map. And, and rugby very quickly um, you know, rallied to this cause of the soldiers who were being killed in Afghanistan uh, and said, we must help. Uh, and I think that, that affinity carries on. So from those players I described see, before the First World War, who were rugby players who had already joined the military, um, to those who then volunteered very, very quickly in August and September of 1914, to today, the tradition still carries on. Um, and there is this almost like a it's not a symbiotic relationship, but it's definitely it's more of an officer class thing than, than, than the, uh, the rank and file. But nonetheless, there is a very strong relationship with these two. And I mean, I, I, I sat and thought, you know, sort of, and, and, and rubbed my beard and sort of stroked my chin and thought, well, why is this? And I've come to a conclusion, and let's see if you guys would agree with this. But I mean, there's lots of sports that are dangerous. Mm. Plenty, plenty of those. Um, I mean, anything involving... Horses and cars in particular seem to be very dangerous. Uh, and, and, you know, you even get, I mean, sadly, you get, you, you get cricketers killed by a blow on the head. You know, it's happened uh, quite recently. And so, um, but I looked at all the sports, you know, and decided that the difference with rugby is that unique amongst team sports, and emphasise the team, is that without the protection of padding or helmets, rugby players go out to play that game um, in a common cause on behalf of their team and they put themselves in harm's way. And that's the key thing, is they put themselves in harm's way mm. on behalf of the team in a common cause. And I can't really think of any other sport that, that does that in the same way uh, as a team. You know, individual sports are dangerous, but other team sports aren't, frankly, and they don't put themselves in harm's way. You know, I mean, you could say uh, anybody facing... Uh, Joffre Arch is in harm's way, but so yeah, again, it's uh, um, it's it's my definition. It probably doesn't stand up to close scrutiny, but that's that's where I felt that uh, um, there's a there's a uh, guy you may know, James, an uh, Australian general, um, Cosgrove. I think he was your senior general, uh, was, Australian yeah. general. Yeah. Uh, so he actually said, probably far more eloquent than me, he said, uh, 
There are similarities between the harsh and lethal demands of warfare and the thrill we get from a full-body contact sport like rugby. The thing about rugby is it does prepare people to keep going under severe stress and things they have to do are extraordinarily hard. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's it. Uh, you know, that sort of sums up. You know, if you can basically go into the type of physical contact involved in rugby, and do it repeatedly again and again and again, it's the closest we can get to, um, if you like, a, a facsimile of what wartime experiences. Um, that's actually, my theory. It's actually interesting as well, Stephen, is that um, taking one of your points a little bit further, is that back in 2014 when we did the uh, first event, uh, Le Tranché de Rugbymen, uh, here on the Chemin des Dames, uh, we marked the deaths of the first rugby internationals from World War One in September 1914. Um, but uh, Crease from the um, uh, Army Chaplains Department uh, actually made a really good presentation to the kids we had over from Blackheath and London Scottish. And he was actually sort of saying that the structure of a rugby team you can actually equate to a military system as well. Mm. In other words, you've got the forwards, you've got your commanders at nine and ten, uh, you've got your, your fast guys out in the centres, full-backed wingers, etc., and it kind of reflects that uh, you've got the leadership there in the middle, grunts, the forwards have to do the hard work, uh, whilst basically the, the, the backs are coming in and, and sort of sweeping in afterwards. So there is this, uh, everybody has a job. And so if you take it from prop hooker, second row, anchor eight, whatever, like it is in a battalion or a, a platoon even, mm. everybody has a specific job. And rugby actually equates itself to... Uh, military system was it i mean it's also interesting that all the allies had something in common they all played rugby yeah i mean it was effectively an anglo-saxon export rugby i mean it was created in the uk and then so you know like so many games we we invented and everybody else come, becomes better than us yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> should, should i stay quiet here at this point no no <laughs> don't, wait, wait. Uh, you're, you're okay you're not better than us <laughs> no, not at the moment anyway we have been in the past but it is interesting what you say about australia you know a, a quick bit of research shows that you know we lost 10 internationals uh, of the war two of those uh, were killed in the opening day of the Gallipoli landings. Yeah. So, you know, and, and we had uh, two military cross uh, winners as well uh, that were killed in that 10. Now, when you compare that to the list of Australian rules or what they called, you know, Victorian rules football back in the day, um, those numbers uh, are in the hundreds because, again, back then, Aussie rules footy, or, or footy as we call it, was, was played more and it was more in abundance. And really, you only really found rugby in places like New South Wales and Queensland, the rest of Australia was all about was all about Aussie rules. Um, but the ten, the, but the ten that we lost, you know, there was certainly a, a great deal of talent. But it doesn't count all of those who were who were wounded. Um, and there's a, um, a British Isles and Aussie player, uh, Tom Richards. He took some some pretty severe wounds to his back and his shoulders, uh, and he died uh, through complications of tuberculosis uh, in about 1935. But those those statistics aren't counted. So you could say that we lost 10, and I'm only speaking from the Australian point of view, but we could have easily lost 100. You know, those statistics sadly weren't counted. Well, what, in fact, from the 1913 team, you actually lost six players from that team Correct. that played against New Zealand, yeah. known as the Bad Six. And in fact, uh, if you look at the New, the, uh, the New Zealand statistics, 13, uh, officially 13 um, lost, but again, it could go into the hundreds because New Zealand, as we know, our, our neighbours down under are crazy about, about rugby. It's all they play. They live it, they breathe it, they eat it for breakfast. It's what they do. Um, so to only lose 13, you know, again, officially, but, but unofficially, it, it, it would go easily into the hundreds. So in, obviously during wartime, uh, uh, there's obviously a lot of inter-service games played. It's, it's hard to arrange it, but I know were the games played obviously the worst thing to do is if you've got the Aussie and New Zealanders next to each other it'd be safer putting them over the top than actually playing rugby against each other you'd lose less people but were the games played during the war and in the rear yeah there was definitely games played um in fact one of one of the tribute events that we ran uh with said school of the old said Turgians, and uh, we dedicated a weekend with them to uh Freddie Turner as he was known as uh, Scotland International 
and he certainly played uh, behind the lines, uh, as did Paul Palmer, I believe, as well, Stephen, didn't he? Yeah, there was a game, famous game in 1915, sort of, um, yeah, uh, where where you know, Paul was to die about sort of a couple of months later. Right. But a whole bunch of internationals all sort of assembled and played a game. It was the most star-studded game, um, and um, yeah, it, I mean, there is still debate there about the exact teams. There's one or two A and others, you know, on the team yeah. sheet that nobody can quite remember who they were. But yeah, that was going on. But I mean, in the early days, you know, when when the guys were training. Uh, for the military, it was deemed to be uh, the perfect form of training. It got you fit, it taught you discipline, um, and and it taught you teamwork. That's the thing, you know, to mm -hmm. take orders, to play to a game plan. Um, so rugby was actively encouraged um, as something that people should do. It was also used very heavily as a recruiting tool, uh, yeah. because, again, of this association of, you know, warlike men, you know, sort of thumping sort of the blazes out of each other on the field. You know, it was deemed to be a fantastic opportunity to recruit like-minded spectators who may have played a bit themselves to join the colours so that they had um, Edgar Mobbs who is the captain of uh, Northampton Saints also England on one occasion um, he organized he, he recruited his own company uh, D company the seventh one fans who became Mobbs own he started off as a lowly private and then worked his way to become lieutenant colonel by the time he was killed in 1917 but he organized a game in January 1915 at the county ground in Northampton, um, which was England versus Scotland. So it was serving soldiers who um, were you know, English or Scottish, many of whom were internationals. Edgar Mobbs was there, um, and it was a recruiting thing. The whole idea was to attract young men to this game while they were there to deliver the recruiting message. And you know, there's a wonderful sort of um, little line in the programme. So you know, uh, Lieutenant Mobbs, because he was only a lieutenant at that point, would be pleased to welcome any volunteer to the dressing room after the game, which sounds a bit dodgy nowadays, but in those <laughs> days, well, what he's basically saying is, rather regally, I will give you an audience, you will meet the great Edgar Mobbs. I mean, he had been captaining, he was a hero in Northampton because of captaining yeah. Saints. So he was, you know, the biggest thing, you know, close to a rock star in, at the time, and therefore it took him to grant him an audience was a severe incentive. Apparently, a lot of guys, just for the sake of meeting the great Edgar Mobbs, volunteered and joined the army. Wow. Uh, it's very interesting because at the time they were having real problems because uh, by 1917 everybody knew what was happening in the war. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, there wasn't any real secrets about what was happening on the Western Front too much. Uh, casualty returns were coming in. It was a real difficulty of obtaining guys to join up. Obviously, you had uh, conscription coming in '16 as well. So it's interesting to see that it actually had a, a, a positive effect as well. But all club rugby, all club rugby stopped completely. There's no club rugby at all. Uh, but some some of the clubs, like Roslyn Park, kept going. They kept the subs going. Uh, all the members sort of stuck, you know, kept on playing the subs just so they'd be there. There'd be an infrastructure. And Roslyn Park um, organised all these military games you know, where, where soldiers coming back from the front for a bit of leave would basically, for a bit of fun, a rest, rest and recreation, would play rugby. Um, or, alternatively, the kids coming straight out of the sixth form at school would be hardened up for a life in the trenches by playing a few rugby games. And, and this is the origin of the, of the Roxton Park School Sevens. I mean, they sort of basically started uh -huh. school board games, public schools games you know, in, in 1914, 1915. And again, it was designed to be training for young men before they went to war. Uh, and then they, you know, as as the war went on, you got guys coming back, you know, either wounded or just for a bit of rest. Uh, they would start rehabbing. Um, you know, there's a New Zealand player called Crystal. Uh, it wasn't an All Black or anything like that, but he was, his name was um, I think it was Harvey Crystal, um, and he um, came back. And there's a letter from him where he says, "I shall miss the pleasant Saturday afternoon recreation. It has got me fit in wind and limb when the doctors have given me up." For, 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 for dead. He'd come back with basic shell shock. Um, and, you know, the doctors had said, well, you know, you're, you're not good to go back to the front. Uh, but we prescribed manly, manly pursuits. I mean, that was literally, it was a, that was a, a medical prescription for sort of shell shock at the time, manly pursuits. And it's felt that by indulging in manly pursuits, you would knock it out of yourself. And, and in, in, in Harvey Crystal's case, you know, it was the truth. You know, he, he played rugby and he went back to the front. Uh, he survived the war as well. Rugby is that unique game. And it is that bond in the, in the locker room. I, you know, I've played a bit of football, but it's, it's completely different. Because you have to, especially as a forward, you have to be shoulder to shoulder. Um, mm. I, you know, I started off in the front row, the move to, move to flanker. <laughs> but 
you know, you start off as there's three of you locked together, then there's five of you locked together, then there's eight of you locked together. And you have to, I mean, if you're looking at the the bombers or, or, or the, the shock troops, which are basically the back row, and then you're looking at the cavalry out on the wings and the, the ones that can manoeuvre quickly, it's yeah. rugby is certainly the game. Was it the same with rugby league? See, my family, my grandfather was a rugby league player up in uh, Salford. And um, was it the same for rugby league as well? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of league guys uh, came in. I mean, probably one of the most famous ones is Jack Harrison, who played for Hull. Uh, VC, killed at Arras. And um, he, he, again, was the rugby league type recruitment guy who they think he was such a famous player within the sport. Again, I mean, you've got to remember the social caste system at the time. Yeah. Rugby league was a was a northern sort of game, which was a breakaway from rugby union, very controversial when it happened. And they were paid. It was professional. So there was a huge amount of southern snobbism about it. Uh, there, was, there was one particular team in London, the Army Service Corps, um, which is, we, we call it loggies now, the Royal Logistics Corps. So um, they basically shifted stuff from one place to another, but they were called the Army Service Corps at the time. They had a team that did nothing but play exhibition rugby, um, and they had quite a lot of rugby league players in there. Who, yeah, the great phrase, they were caught. They were caught amnested. Yeah, they were amnested. Yeah, as if somehow what they were doing was illegal. Yes, yeah, so, but this is the rugby union being snobbish about it. They amnested them and allowed them to play rugby, despite the fact they'd gone off to what was called the Northern Union before it was called rugby league. It was called the Northern Union, um, and they were amnested and allowed to play rugby again. So, yeah, I mean, so patronising, unbelievable. Um, but, but there was a bit of a circus um, of, of this particular team going around playing any team that came back from the trenches. There's, there's, a, there's a very nice print from a magazine which I've got somewhere which shows uh, the New Zealand trenches team who came back on leave and played the Army Services Corps at what is recognisably Richmond's <coughs> ground, you know, the, the Richmond Athletic ground. Um, and it's what they did. So it was like a travelling circus. And people like Edgar Mobbs, who I previously said, he was a bit scornful of these guys. He went to one of those games when he came back after being wounded in 1917 for a bit of rehab, went to a game and, and was very scathing about these guys, you know, playing some rugby, but not being at the front. Um, so, you know, it, again, it was controversial, but, you know, it wasn't purely rugby, but a lot of rugby league stars were, were in that particular army service corps team. So, John, obviously you founded the Rugby Memorial in, in France. Tell us about that. Tell us how what, what inspired you to start that, why you chose the location, and, 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 <laughs> and, but, and but basically everything. Because, yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, 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 for me, you, you know, part of my back, personal backstory of, of actually tracing my grandfather, who originally came from South Africa, underage soldier, fought on the Somme, and was at Delville Wood. Um, he was one of the survivors, uh, but was later wounded. And uh, my father was born in 1918, uh, in 1st of September 18. Um, but father and uh, son never met. Uh, my grandfather would have got a letter in the trenches to say he was a father. Uh, but that was nine weeks before the end of the First World War. And in that time, he was killed. And my father became a foundling. So that was kind of the basis of where I sort of come from. Uh, with things. So uh, then the adopted name that my father was given in February 1919. And from there, uh, he was a sportsman. I'm a, I've been a sportsman in my time. And uh, coming over here to uh, Lyon in the N department. Uh, so we're, for, if you know your geography, the bit of northern France, we're one department below the Somme. Uh, that's about an hour's drive north from here. And um, here, of course, the Chemin de Dan was the big battlefield. Um, majority of the war, of course, was this patch was fought on by the French. And, uh, but the Brits were here in 14, 17 and 18. And I got involved with the local rugby club, having moved over here, uh, as you do. And um, we've got a couple of touring teams out. My old club at Maidstone, where I used to play with probably uh, old fellas to come out and play okay. a couple of games. And uh, the club president said to me about, well, can we get some more games? And this was mid-2013. Uh, mid and I said, well, if we wait a season, let's actually plan something a bit special because we can do something to mark the centenary of the First World War. And 
at that point, my knowledge was very low base uh, on things. Uh, I then got introduced to a guy called Frank Wiltar at the Conciel Department, and Frank had been appointed uh, to oversee all First World War centenary projects uh, in the north of France. And uh, he's a rugby guy as well. We got chatted. And so we came up with the first event because we realised that the first three internationals killed uh, were killed on or around the Chemin du Dam, and many others wounded. And uh, we came up and we found that from the British side that the three players killed uh, came from Blackheath and London Scottish. So we set up this project called La Tour Shade de Rugby Made, in other words, the Rugby Players Trench. Uh, because it was one the early September the 14th, 1914, on an attack at a place called Cerny and Lanois. Uh, the Germans held the ridge and the Brits had to attack up. And of course, it was all part of the first offensive um, uh, here on the, the Marne and Chemin Didam area. And so we did this first event and they and we're a bit flat afterwards for a few months. And Frank and I met up in his office one day and we said, well, what else can we do? And the 2015 World Cup was looming large on the horizon at the time. Um, and we've done a bit more research, found out a bit more about the history of rugby. And I use Stephen's book, actually, as part of my research as well, uh, amongst many other things. And, of course, we had the Rugby Museum at Twickenham, which was easy access to get to know people there. And we come up with this idea of a rugby memorial. I wasn't too sure quite what, how, what we were going to do with it, but we related it to those first internationals killed on the Chemin du Dam. Uh, so that's why it's at Cranel, and that's the reason why. Uh, it's actually interesting. People let's say such a, a monument would look really good at Twickenham, until uh, I pointed out that Twickenham were just used to feed horses in the First World War. Mm. Um, you know, and that was about it, as it was Cabbage Patch, mm. as it was known as at the time. Um, and... We just sort of progressed forward from there. We uh, got permission. We had some land from the Conseil Department where the Basque Memorial is. Uh, the Basque Regiment um, lost a lot of men here in uh, the First World War. A uh, huge connection between this region and the southwest of France now. A uh, huge rugby playing area, of course. Yeah. Uh, many, many rugby players killed um, from the, all the famous clubs in the south because uh, they fought here on the Chemin du Dam. And we were given a plot of land adjacent to their uh, monument and we have it built. And uh, so we put a plea out at the time, sort of ideas as to how we can do things. And uh, Jean Pierre Reeve heard about it. Jean Pierre Reeve? Uh, yep. And he contacted, we, wow. were in the, we were in the office at the Conciel Department one morning, and this phone call came through to Frank's office and it said, uh, someone called Mr. Reeve is on the phone and Jean-Pierre Reeve and we looked at each other across the office going yeah right you know as you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he's a sculptor by trade no did not um, know that so he said to us he said well look have you got anyone to design it or have you got um, an idea we said well not really he said would you leave it to me which is exactly what we did and he donated his work to us he had done a uh, a piece called The Ribbons of Memory at the Stade de France. And we have a smaller version of that here now on the Chemin de Dam, which we unveiled on the 16th of September 2017. Wow, that is amazing. And do you know what? It seems so much more... Um, uh, we think what we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, we were talking about the Christmas trees. Yeah, and the, the football memorial, which is actually in the wrong place. Well, the, the great thing about this, we between Frank Viltar and myself, we've actually been able to drive the whole thing through. We've been in control of it um, as such. So the whole programming of it. I just said to Frank, um, once we got all the permissions through, it was going to happen. And we started inviting all the various guests and so on and the teams to come out. So we had Trojans from the Southampton area, um, very famous old club, Waterloo. Uh, up there in Lancashire, they came out. We had Cowbridge represent Wales uh, at the festival. Um, the UK Army came out. We had the French Pacific Army here. The Rugby for Heroes, the French Legends. We had a one hell of a weekend uh, commemorating wow. this. We were then looking, okay, we've got a monument. What do we do next? You know, there's got to, we've got to give this meaning. Yep. And that's when we came up with the idea of then create or 
going out to clubs and appealing to clubs and schools and, as I say, the completely utter response. Um, you know, speaking to Stephen about it originally and Stephen very kindly forwarded to me all the Rostin Park details. So we started creating this database and the idea is that everybody knows about the international players, but no one knows about Fred Jones, the butcher who played for old Shrewsbury thirds yeah. on a Saturday yeah. afternoon who got shot to bits on the song. So he's as valid as your Edgar Mobs, your Ronnie Porton Palmers, and yeah. et cetera. Um, so we have a, a non-discriminate database we're trying to create at the moment from around the world to get as much detail as we can about the, the guys who fought and died in World War One, we're now extending into World War Two, uh, and the idea being that we find out where the guy came from, when he was born, uh, who he played for, um, who he fought for, fought with, where he died, when he died, and we just create this basic database which we want to start opening up a little bit further now uh, by asking families or relatives or people with some knowledge who could put a photograph up of. Fred Boggs. And the idea is a research project. And I'm sure, I mean, willing that someone will take over the running of this from me at some point uh, on that side of things, because the whole thing is just too big for one or two people just to on their own. How many guys have you got listed on that at the moment? Uh, we've got around about five and a half thousand at the moment. Wow. Speaking, I mean, I'm, I'm sure with Stephen, we both know a lot of people in, in the game. Uh, so another colleague of mine, uh, Steve Berg, who's head of the All Blacks Museum, and I, I rang Stephen for um, me the middle of the night for him lunchtime, um, and um, I said, Steve, if you had to put a round figure on it for New Zealand, how many players do you think you've lost in two world wars? He said, a minimum of 20,000 who played rugby at some level, mm. a basic club level, basically at school, uni, or further up the ladder. Um, you think about stats. I mean, about New Zealand, the yeah. guesstimate is mm. not a problem. It's probably not wider the mark. Mm. So it's very interesting, John, because I, I hadn't realised that work was being done. I mean, I in in the second book, which is about the first one was purely focused on one club in London, which is Ross's right. Park. But the second book was you know went global. So you know because I'm not very I'm not very original on titles. I called it After the Final, which because it was about <laughs> King. King's Cup in 1919 oh. it enabled me to sort of gallop through, you know, the history of rugby in those nations. But the the thing I found myself talking about is that if you look at the again, I suppose looking at the stats, mm. um, about eight million of the on the Allied side fought in the war, um, of which some 10% uh, were fatalities who were killed. Um, mm. If you look at officers the stat is about 19%, yeah? and the reason being is that they were the ones who were most exposed to risk. They were the first over the top. Whatever anybody says, you ignore Blackadder. It's not like that yeah. at all. They, they were the first over. They were the ones who went on the inspection tours, the trench in the middle of the night, and got shot by snipers because they were, you know, they were showing the head well, of the trenches. Well, Palmer and Turner, isn't it? The great yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. And, and then sort of, yeah, I, I was thinking nobody will ever know how many guys who fought were rugby players? Because no, how, how could you no, ever know? So out. apart from the celebrity internationals, nobody would ever know. But when I looked at all the data and all, particularly the photographs I was collecting, mm. over and over again, I used to see when 15 men got together or 30 men on a field, in any given game, you would find that about 30 to 33 to 35% of the guys in those games prior to the war whether it was the Oxbridge Varsity match, whether it was an international, I mean, the, the England-France game in 1914, the last international before the war, you know, it was 11 of 30 took the field, um, were killed during the war. And he used to get this 30% stat every time. Um, and again, what I put it down, you know, the reason why it's more than the officers is, is again, this is a hypothesis, it's speculation, is that they were officer class, but also... They were rugby players. They were used to leading from the front. So, you know, they yeah. would be literally the first over the top, leading the men, and they copped it, you know. Uh, and, and the stories you got, I mean, the, the Aussie ones at Gallipoli, and so, you know, the, the guys there, there's, there's a brilliant man called um, James, you may know a bloke called Billy Watson, um, yep. who survived the war. Now, Billy Watson, he captained the Australia team in this 1919 Kings Cup. Um, he'd won a military cross by that point. 
worked um, and had come through the most astonishing hardships. He not only did he do this in the First World War, but in the Second World War, he went onto the um, the Kokoda Trail um, and and won a DSO there. So you know, twenty years later, in fact, more than twenty years later, he was fighting again. Um, but this is the guy who captained. He was a prop forward thing. He captained this um, Australian military team that played in the King's Cup. He'd been gassed in October um, by mustard gas, uh, and it was still in April, bringing up these terrible sores on his legs, which caused him huge pain. And he couldn't play with these. So the um, the, the, the team doctor, uh, who had been a medic out in the trenches, used to sort of uh, stick a penknife in some boiling water and then literally sort of lance these these bullet, these sores, yeah. these mustard gas sores. So he took the field already bleeding, uh, but it was the only way he could not play in absolutely intense pain by going on with these sores lanced. Um, and just a phenomenal man. And again, to go on and 20, 25 years later to be fighting in the Second World War, uh, and he survived them both. I mean, so some of these guys are almost superhuman. Um, and, you know, his, his story is just remarkable. So that's just it. I mean, one, one of the things we did, uh, David, which you might recall from when we were chatting, um, I came over to the club with you um, in 2016, um, was that half of our appeal around the clubs, because you've got to remember, a lot of clubs have formed. You know, they, there's a heck of a lot of clubs that have formed pre-war. Some never recovered. Uh, there was a huge influx of new clubs from about 1923 onwards through to the mid-30s. Lots and lots of new clubs in that time period. But what we did, I mean, playing for Maidstone, as I did uh, after I left the village team, was had an honours board up. Mm-hmm. You know, and you got your past presidential captains and... Uh, secretaries and all that. You've also got the guys who were killed in First World War and Second World War. And part of the appeal out to the clubs and also back to the schools was you've got these honours board. We're not asking you to dig around and find a huge amount of data that you don't necessarily already not know, but we're just trying to collate it into one place. Uh, so there's one place the whole world can come to now, which is the memorial and the database. If you want to find about the history of the game, we're trying to make it, this is the place to come uh, as well. So I've had letters back from some clubs saying, well, why do you want this? Or, or thank you for inviting us, but um, we don't feel this is um, our direction we don't want to go in or something like that. Whereas others, you know, Clifton is another club, you know, um, similar age to um, Ark, uh, Blackheath, London Scottish, these sort of clubs would just fell over themselves to give us what we wanted. I mean, it's an amazing project we're doing. And, 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 you know, the, the books are amazing. They really sum up the sport. They're, they're, the, the memorial is done in the right, in the, in the rugby spirit. The, the books are written in the same way. I think only when you've played rugby do you understand what I mean in a way. Through reading books, it's the only way that you're going to actually work. Go, oh, actually, that story is like my grandfather's or my great-grandfather's. And this is really what we want to do. I can, I can give actually a working example of that. Um, up in East London, Wanstead Rugby Club, uh, they lost 28 on the Somme in the first Battle of the Somme. Now, they came out for the Somme Centenary Festival where Stephen very kindly wrote an article for the uh, event programme. And of the kids that came, three were direct descendants of the 28. Wow. Uh, they were either great-great-grandsons or nephews of. And what we did on the last morning before they went back, we were really going to take them to Tiet Bar because we knew there was one Wanstead player listed there who was one of the relatives. But we also took them to two other grave sites on the Somme and reconnected these kids with their own personal family history. Wow. You can imagine the emotion from that. Had they, had they been aware, John, before your project? No. 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 Uh, Alison Fisher, the, yeah. club, the club historian, knew all this. Yeah, uh, and Alice was a great guy to work with, uh, but the kids themselves didn't know. No, I mean, it's, that, that was to me one of the great eye openers of my project. Is that, you know, one of the things I did is encourage the kids to to find out about their own sort of background yeah. and, 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 and the variety. I mean, being Southwest London, very cosmopolitan, you know, people moving in and out. So, two of my star players at the time were 
with the um, you know, a couple of French boys. You know, um, one was the number eight, the other one was the scrum half. They were twins, would you believe? One was huge, the other one was tiny. They were <laughs> twins. Um, but they turn out to have had a father who was a pilot. Uh, so a, gr- a grandfather, a great grandfather was a pilot. He'd survived the war. The most poignant one, um, particularly because the, the parents had not been aware of it, is there was a guy who, um, his, 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 the origins were German. Um, and they found that sort of grand, great-grandfather had been uh, on the Eastern Front um, yeah. and had got sort of caught behind the lines you know, by the Russians and, and you know, was very lucky to escape. And then they left um, before the Second War, because we all know what was happening in the 30s mm-hmm. in Germany, and came to the UK effectively became English um, and, yeah, and uh, but they hadn't realised this, they'd always thought of themselves as, 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 as English uh, okay. until they looked back at it and realised and somebody in the family told them the story about their father having fought on the Eastern Front for, for Germany so, and this is a real revelation to them. So looking forward, obviously like ourselves we had lots of plans for 2020 uh, events and yeah. tours and so on. Yeah. And, and you and I and the Trust were going to work together on a couple. As you know, Chris, I worked for two years on preparing the VE75 event uh, in conjunction with the UK military and the Inter-Services Championship. And uh, the idea was that for the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, we would have this big event in Calais, Dunkirk. But it started in the UK and followed this wonderful path. We tried to keep it revised for this year, but COVID has beaten us twice. Yeah. So the idea now is that we're going to have a big restart event in September at the National Arboretum, uh, which we feel is going to be uh, the best place to start. The Inter-Services Committee guys are, are right behind it. Um, there's a possibility of some very, very special game. At the same time, we're going to have the kids there from local schools Fantastic. as well. So we're going to have this... Uh, ceremony at the, the National Arboretum on the 15th of September, of course, which is Battle of Britain Day. 16th of September is World Rugby Memorial Day. And the 18th is the start of the Women's World Cup. So we're actually going to focus on girls' rugby as well. We're going to have a girls' sevens for novice schools, uh, introducing rugby to schools. Um, just look at it as a new activity, um, as well as having a, a rugby tens for the boys uh, on September 15th as well. We're going to look to now wrap this up, but yeah. what I'd like to do is very much, if you're from a rugby club or you played rugby or you have family or you have any link with what we spoke about tonight, do certain certain things. First of all, and this is going to be a completely blatant plug, get <laughs> Stephen's book. Stephen, you, got, you talked about the final whistle, which I have a copy here, and the one after that is called the... After the final whistle, the would final you believe? Whistle. <laughs> after the final whistle, you know, get those books, read them, inspire yourself, take it to your rugby club, take it to your team, talk to the senior players, and if they don't help, go into the club, have a look. I mean, obviously, I I, I played at Tunbridge and I played I played at, at, at boarding school and prep school and so on, but everyone has got a board up. Even modern day, even the local school around the corner has got a board up and where they were playing football and playing rugby and, you know, get involved because it is so inspiring. The book's amazing. It is a universal sport on a different way. James, tell me about, you know, obviously in Australia, New Zealand, down under South Africa, yeah, Southern yeah. nations. I mean, it, it really is huge. And I alluded to it earlier by saying that, you know, sort of back in World War One times, Australia was very much split. It was Australian rules footy or the footy, as it was called back then. Uh, and really, you only had rugby in New South Wales and a little bit in Queensland. But now it's everywhere. It is absolutely yeah. everywhere. You know, it, it's an Australia wide competition. And, mm. and, and New Zealand, they, they they live, breathe and eat it for breakfast. I mean, it's just what you do uh, in New Zealand. It's either that or cricket. Um, mm. But, you know, it's just part of part of everyday life. I mean, I, I grew up, and probably flashing my age here, but I grew up playing Aussie rules and being from Western Australia. I hadn't really heard of rugby. And I met a New Zealander who said, you're a big fella, because I've always been a big fella. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot four and probably just as wide and a very broad set of shoulders. But... He said, you're a big fella, you should, you should play rugby. And I said, well, you know, I've kind of, yeah, I, I don't know, I, I like my Aussie rules. And he said, now come down and try out and see what you think. 
And I went down and I watched them play a game of Union and I thought, yeah, this is for me. And I played. <laughs> Didn't play very well, mind you, but I played. Uh, and, I, and I had a few good years and then my knees gave out and then that was that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a sport unlike any other. You know, you, you, can, you can play football, you can play Aussie rules, you can play basketball, whatever it might be, whatever your sport is. You will never have the camaraderie that yeah. you have when you are playing rugby. There is nothing else like it. And I've still got some very good friends from years ago that yeah. I still talk to now and some of my closest friends. So, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, th I think, you know, if you're fortunate enough to, to play rugby and have it in your blood, you will have some friends that you will carry through your entire life. And it's a very special thing. John, how do you... Um guys who want to get uh, involved in your project get in contact with you uh, you can come straight to us at rugbymemorial at gmail.com if you just wanted to email us we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter uh, just go rugby memorial you'll find us there uh, there's the company parent company website which is www.francourt.org uh, that's F-R-A-N-C-O-U-R-T uh, the site is currently being updated you see some of our back videos on there, we just done a recording, new recording of Welding Union uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, I'm not singing on it, you'd be pleased to know. Um, Emma is a professional singer. Um, which is great. You'll find our World War II Rugby Heroes video on there. Again, Stephen uh, very kindly uh, uh, nominated the player for that uh, video. Uh, our Remembrance Day video. Um, and we continue now using the YouTube channel within the website now as a, as a marketing tool. Also at the same time, uh, to share the history and things that we find. Well, and uh, the Armistice Games now held every year uh, is getting bigger each year. Unfortunately, we lost last year because of COVID, mm. but uh, we should be back bigger and stronger. And we're currently about to start a big marketing campaign uh, for kids around Europe to get together in October in Compiègne again. So I'm going to wrap up now. First of all, I'd just like to say, Stephen, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for talking to us tonight. Yeah, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it. John, thank you so much. We look forward to um, working with you and projects and, and visiting. Desperate want to come down and visit. And, and I'm yeah. going to have, unfortunately have to drag these, these two <laughs> reprobates with me. Well, we just need the borders <laughs> to be reopened and I can come over. Well, gents, I, uh, a massive thank you. That's brilliant. Thanks for the invitation, Chris. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. As for who's going to ring this, win the Six Nations uh, predictions, John? Well, without wanting to upset the natives, I'll just look it up the road just in case. Uh, <laughs> well, I think after Saturday, uh, England now have to beat France. Yeah. Otherwise, I think the French will have enough in the tank this year. Stephen, any thoughts? Yeah, France all the way. I mean, clearly the best team there. They should have they should have beaten England the last time round in that sort of autumn tournament. Yep. Um, they they've got real talent there. Young team, you know, bravery, trusting people are in form, which is something Eddie doesn't seem to do. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so James? no, I mean France all the way. James, thoughts? I'm going to have yeah, to go yeah. France as well. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Uh, <laughs> Stephen, any thoughts? Allez le bleu. Uh, there we go. <laughs> I, I hate, I, hate I'm, I'm happy because I got my Brexit visa last week. <laughs> Brilliant. Guys, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. So enjoyable tonight. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and we're going to be played out with uh, a, a song about Christmas trees all together now, but it is couldn't more, more define rugby and the way you play it and where we play it and why we play it. So from us at uh, Shortlift Trust, podcast all together now. Thank you very much and uh, thank you for listening. Yeah.